when somebody puts an intention out there and they put the energy behind it, it's going to happen. You make it reality. You know, you put energy behind it and then people hear your energy. They hear that excitement and that enthusiasm. They feel that conviction behind it. And then there is so much uh, that conspires to help you when you do that. That's Candace Young, and this is the Powerful Ladies Podcast. Hey guys, I'm Kara Duffy, a business coach and entrepreneur on a mission to help you live your most extraordinary life by showing you anything is possible. People who have mastered freedom, ease, and success, who are living their best and most ridiculous lives, and who are making an impact, are often people you've never heard of until now. So many people dream of being a global nomad, traveling and working around the world and breaking free from the hamster wheel we often find ourselves in. The pull is to live a life of purpose and adventure. Today's guest, Candace Young, has mastered both a nomadic lifestyle but also a purpose-driven lifestyle. She's the founder and executive director of Trek Relief, a nonprofit that combines adventure travel with giving back to the local communities. Get ready to be inspired to level up your life. Well, I am very excited to talk to you today. You are doing a lot of very cool and very important things. Before we jump into all of that, let's tell everyone who you are, where you are in the world, and what you're up to. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me on here. Uh, My name is Candice Young. I am based right now in Los Angeles. And um, I say right now because I do a lot of different kinds of travel. I would say most of my 20s, I was backpacking. I was just, I considered myself a dirty backpacker, just living in a hostel (laughs) and just collecting stamps in my passport and just exploring the world. Um, But my home base, I grew up here in LA. Um, I have work here in LA and my community's here in LA. So it's a really great springboard to be able to go out into the world and do what I do. So, And you have um, a big variety of, of roles you play in different communities and different jobs you have. Let's just run down the list for everyone to get to get an overview of all the things that are you. Oh, gosh. Okay. Uh, I have held quite a variety of interesting jobs in my life. Um, none of them were corporate. I would call them all contract and gig style work. Um, I guess in order, that makes things easy for me, was I was a scuba diving guide in Southeast Asia for a year. A fire dancer by night, which paid for my living and travel expenses and scuba diving bills. <laughs> um, uh, a marine biologist working as a fisheries observer up in Alaska, working on fishing boats, commercial fishing boats. Uh, a diver who was counting uh, <laughs> uh, endangered and threatened species over in Santa Cruz Mountains. Uh, most recently now I'm a, a wedding officiant professionally, and that supports me as I do my work, uh, leading a nonprofit that I started six years ago that, um, uh, basically fundraises for different communities around the world by tying active adventurous trips to them in the Himalayas, Patagonia, and Mongolia currently. So, uh, I think I'll stop there. (laughs) Just a few things, just a few things. (laughs) 
Uh, well, let's dive into Trek, Trek Relief. Um, why did you start it? Where did that idea come from? And how has that surprised you? Yeah, yeah. So like I mentioned, I spent a lot of my time in, the, in my 20s uh, traveling as a backpacker. And I felt very fortunate to have had the opportunity working the contract style of work I did out in the fishing boats in Alaska and basically just had a chunk of money that saved up because there's not enough internet to spend it. <laughs> just satellite internet could barely like uh, load emails. And so by the time I got off my three to five month contracts, I would be, I'd have a chunk of change. And so I'd spend it on uh, plane tickets and hostels and I'd go be abroad for five to 19 months at a time. And I did this for most of my twenties. And I would say that at some point, I did get to a point where I was really questioning myself and my lifestyle. And even though I felt so lucky to be able to be traveling as much as I was at the age that I was, I also was getting to this point um, that a lot of long-term travelers, they might come to as well of like, is travel selfish? And that was mm-hmm. a question that a friend posed to me. It's like, is this, what is the point of all this? Like, I can say, yes, I am bringing my money and spending it abroad and helping with those economies and, re- and communities. But um, but really, what is the point of all this? And so that was in the back of my mind as I kept on buying these plane tickets. And I remember I was getting jaded on travel. It was it was so weird to get to that point. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what? At this point now, like buying plane tickets is just my default mode. And like, actually, what's more exciting to me, the next adventure is actually staying in one place and just like mm-hmm. being able to say yes to birthday parties that are planned like two months in advance or like <laughs> actually being able to tell you where I'd be in the next like three months or so. Um, so that became actually more exciting to me than just like being on the road all the time. And so I was like ready to put my traveler's hat down, but there was like one more kind of travel that I hadn't tried yet. And so I was curious about it, which was um, getting involved with disaster relief volunteer work. So I remember trying to apply for jobs on land <laughs> as like a change. And then also I applied for volunteer work abroad and then the volunteer work got back to me first. And so that's how I ended up in Nepal. And I had already fallen in love with them like uh, on a previous trip. And in the sense of like the trekking there is amazing. I didn't even know what trekking was when I went, but I just like hopped the border from India. I was, I was actually part of an India trip. I was like, oh, Nepal's right there. I'll just go check it out. And then like hop the border, didn't even like download any Lonely Planet stuff. I just Googled, what are you doing, Nepal? <laughs> and there's like, go trekking. <laughs> I was like, all right, what's trek? And I just like ended up on Annapurna Trek, which is like this 20 day trek. And um, I didn't hire a guide or anything. I just bought a book in the bookstore and just followed the book. And um, I didn't even read ahead. I just like bought the things on the packing list and then I just go day by day. And I think by day six, I realized, I was like, am I in the Himalayas? Like, I, not, <laughs> I was like really not planning ahead. I was just really going by the flow. And um, anyway, so I fell in love with Nepal and the Himalayas because that was just the best hiking of my life. Like every day was different. Um, I, my fit, I was not even that into hiking before, but by mm-hmm. the time I was done, I was just like, so, so like, this is the best. Like, um, I felt so fit. I was eating like vegetarian, vegan, like vegetarian, like local foods, like three meals a day. It was like power mountain food. Um, and it was so delicious because every, like, um, they call them DDs, like older sisters, uh, they cook it in the tea houses for you every day. And you got like three hot meals and, um, and the culture there's amazing. It's like Tibetan Buddhism. It's like so beautiful, the Buddhist mm-hmm. principles, but also mixed with this like really cool demonic images of Tibetan 
uh, bond religions that they mixed in. So very, very interesting and fascinating. Um, anyway, so that's the backstory of why I love Nepal in the first place. But anyway, so I went back and ended up volunteering there for them after the earthquake. And I volunteered mm-hmm. for another nonprofit called All Hands, which is an amazing disaster relief nonprofit. And I gave them three months. And um, after three months, uh, actually during that time, they realized that I was sticking around for so long. And then I ended up getting hired as their project coordinator. So that became like kind of my foot in the door of what it was like to work um, in the nonprofit world in Nepal and how mm-hmm. to like build and construct and work, work on like, uh, rubbled or like destroyed buildings after the earthquake. And so when that project finished three months later, then I had already set aside two more months to do trekking in the Himalayas. So I had like three more treks lined up. Um, and then one of them was to go check out the earthquake, like epicenter area. So I went mm-hmm. into the Himalayas, which nobody was like, it was like, you can't go. They got really destroyed. It's really dangerous. They're still having like aftershocks, but I still went because I found out you could go. You just had to like figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I grabbed a friend, we went, and then I saw way more destruction there than I did like in the past uh, three months that I had spent in the epicenter, supposedly. And so that's when I decided, you know what, I am so moved by this. Like there were people yeah. who were like, um, they were asking my friend and I to like, please stay the night, please have lunch here, please share the business, make it fair. And it was like, when I got there, it looked like a, a bomb had gone off. Like it was, it was a year after the earthquake and um, because they were so up, high up in the mountains and not as densely populated as other areas, they weren't getting as much help. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, so then I got off the trail like 10 days later and I was like, oh my gosh, like if anyone wants to go on vacation, come here, they could really use your money. And, um, and yeah, that would be so helpful for them. And so I just put, made a post on Facebook, like, it, you know, gosh, action or not, not really. Um, but then over the course of the next two months, I had more treks and I was just hiking, just hiking Mm -hmm. and thinking and just like reflecting on all the experiences and people that I met and my passion of trekking and like, um, and really getting involved in the nonprofit world. And I was like, you know what? Like, I feel like I should do a fundraiser for this village. And, Mm -hmm. and, um, so that's how Trekkily started. It was just a personal fundraiser to help out this village and I offered to like help guide, like organize guided and porter treks into the village. Um, and basically like met somebody on the trail who he was like, it was like super scary to even be sharing this idea. Cause it's one of those things where like you, you say it out loud and then you're like, no, I have to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but to even, but I like had the confidence to share it with him cause he was just a stranger on the trail, but he ended up being the perfect person to meet um, because he's a professor and he taught crowdfunding and entrepreneurship. And so he just basically was like, oh, that's a great idea. By the way, I teach this and let me give you a crash course on the trail. <laughs> so we walked in the same direction for seven days and he just gave me like, gave, I was just like taking notes of everything. We came up with the name Trek Relief together. And originally I was thinking, okay, I'll try to aim for like raising like $10,000. And then he was the one who challenged me. He's like, no, I think you should go for higher. And so I was like, I came back to him the next morning. I was like 50,000. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I go for that. And I was like, oh man, that's gonna be a lot of work. <laughs> um, but then yeah, it was it was because of him that I I set that original goal and I set aside after I got off the trail, I set aside a year to get myself mm-hmm. time to do that. And by following all of his notes to a T, like we actually reached that goal in eight months. And just wow. through like um yeah, making a lot of posts on social media, just like sharing, tagging, appreciating all the things. 
Um, we had 40 people come through each of them, you know, they either donated or helped them create a fundraising page to come on this. And then that's how Truck Relief started. <laughs> and, and now it's, it's become much more than I originally thought. So yeah. Well, before a- we, before we dive into what it is now, like there are so many things that had to happen that were almost, you know, kismet or magical or the universe saying, like putting breadcrumbs down for you to make this happen. Like, what are the chances that this professor is on the same track that you're on and is willing to share and you were brave enough to share with him? And, you know, what are the chances that you ignored everyone's advice and went to the village anyway? Like there's it, everyone who's doing something they're passionate about, I think that we sometimes skip over how many magical moments had to happen to even make the idea like possible. <laughs> when, when you reflect on that, like, what do you, what do you see? What do you think? And does that keep happening for this business? It is so true. I would say that like through this entire journey of mm-hmm. starting this, you know, nonprofit or even, you know, mm-hmm. for profit, anyone who's an entrepreneur has that drive, has that vision um, I, I believe in this amazing divinity of each person. And so when somebody puts an intention out there and they put the energy behind it, it's going to happen, <laughs> you know, and then especially if you share your ideas and you're like, uh, the more you speak about it, um, you make it reality, you know, you put energy behind it and then people hear their energy. They hear that excitement and that enthusiasm. They feel that conviction behind it. And then there is so much uh, that conspires to help you when you do that. And so, and so, yeah, I think I had to, for me, I had to really believe in the idea of me wanting to do this enough to, to say it out loud to a stranger. And then that stranger is like, Oh, that is a good idea. By the way, I have what I, what you might need. (laughs) Um, And, and yeah, with, when there's a good idea, that is something that is beyond yourself and it helps others. I think people can really get behind that. So um yeah, it's been a really, really amazing journey to have Trek Relief become what it is now because of the help of um, friends, community, strangers, mm-hmm. just people rising up and seeing something greater in that. So, and, and so let's get into what Trek Relief looks like now. So you, correct me if I'm wrong, you're now organizing trips for people to go have this amazing Trek vacation or holiday while doing good and helping out in the local community. And you're doing that in Mongolia, you're doing that in Nepal, and you're doing that, there's a third one, right? Patagonia, Chile. Patagonia, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so how many trips have you done since this started? How many people have been involved? Yeah. So uh, we're having our 20th trip launched this November back in the Everest region, or yeah, Everest region. Um, and we are currently, well, we had trips in Mongolia, but there, the travel there is a little bit still uh, difficult with the borders. Um, mm-hmm. But we just ran our first, our second trip in Patagonia um, this past March. And then um, our, I guess it was our 14th trip in Nepal uh, this past November. So we've, wow. we've had different kinds of trips um, that have ranged from, it started with earthquake relief in, in Nepal, but it's also expanded to doing different kinds of projects based on what the requests, what the needs, what the resources that we had available and the people, what kind of offerings they were bringing. Mm-hmm. So we've done like a medical trip to the Everest region, bringing like a bunch of supplies and also nurses and even a doctor. Um, we've done 
educational park cleanups in Mongolia and installed the uh, national park's first trash cans um, and also planted trees. And then also in Patagonia, we installed the first recycling point in one of the townships in that area and also built a educational community garden to help promote the principles of permaculture for students in the community alike. So it's really just a matter of like, what is the flow? What is the inspiration? What is the thing that someone feels passionate about? And then how do we bring it all together to make it happen uh, possible? I love that. I, I haven't had the pleasure yet to go to Nepal, to Everest or Patagonia, but I have gone to Mongolia and it was one of the best trips I've ever done in my life. Um, I like, if anyone's asked where to go, I'm like, go to Mongolia. Like it's that perfect blend still of untouched, but functional enough for Western people to like not lose their minds <laughs> at the same time for, especially for <laughs> beginner travelers. And, you know, it, it was just such an incredible trip. And all we did was rent a van with a driver and we just went yurt to yurt and stayed with families with this route that he knew. And it like, we couldn't speak and we couldn't communicate in the same language with most of our hosts. And the driver spoke German. And luckily um, my friend and I who were on the trip had lived in Germany. So we could speak German to him a little bit, but it was really an exercise of just like watching and observing and figuring it out and being like, all right, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Mongolia was so wild and so special. I mm -hmm. totally resonate with you on that. And that just brought me back to my memories of when I was in Mongolia too, for scouting out the project for track relief. And it was just like, so unique, you know, yes. and I, I felt one of the big takeaways I felt from that time, that experience was like, it felt timeless. Like mm -hmm. every country has its different things. America has resources, but no time. Yes. Mongolia has time. And yes. it felt very special to recognize that in the yurt, you know, setting and like grandpa's sitting in the chair and looking at nothing for like half the day. And you're like, yes. dude, you have time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, and even seeing like, I, um, we saw wild horses in Mongolia and like, that was amazing to see. And it's just um, the diversity of the country as well. I don't think people expect Mongolia to be as diverse as it is, but we saw everything from the Gobi Desert to mountains with snow to huge green areas that I was like, it felt like Ireland with waterfalls and rainbows and, you know, back to things that looked more like Colorado. And it was just the diversity of the landscape was surprising. And of course, like the stars, it was just, and everyone was nice. Like there was this laid back approach, at least towards us as, as foreigners, but everyone was just really relaxed. Yeah. And like, okay. Yep. There was just like this. Okay. Keep going. Okay. Keep going. And you're like, what is going on around here? I want to, <laughs> how do I take some of this magic home? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mongolia is so special, so special. And I can't wait till we get to start our trips to get again over there. Yeah. Well, I want to go back to you traveling through your 20s because there are so many people listening who would love to take a year and just travel, even, even just the U.S., let alone internationally, or they would love to figure out a way to make travel just how they live their life. How did you, you mentioned before that you would work kind of intensely for a few months at a time to pay for the rest of the year. You also mentioned finding jobs on location. 
what was your plan? How did you figure out how to make that work? Like, what did you have to give up or let go of to, to make it all happen? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And, um, like, I, like I had so many different directions that I wanted to answer that, but I think to, <laughs> I, I guess what helped me in that was I started this right after I graduated college. So I had this like point in my life where I was like, I graduated with a bio degree emphasis in Marine, but I don't know exactly what I want to do with it. And like, mm-hmm. I had like three options that like, seemed appealing. One was, um, go live in San Francisco at this like artist commune. <laughs> and go like spin props with people. Another one was my mom's suggestion to um, travel the world before I got, you know, a job and kids because that was something she always wanted to do. And then the third was like apply for jobs that I would just end up somewhere. I didn't know exactly where I wanted to be. And so, um, so the second one sounded the best. So I was like, I'll go for that. So um, I had $3,000 in my pocket saved from my college lab job. Um, and my plan was just to make it last as long as possible and come back when I was ran out. And so, um, so basically with that mentality, I went into it with like, first of all, uh, a freshly graduated college student. So used to roughing it and making my, my tiny stretch, you know? So at least I it wasn't having this like super high standard of living that I had to like, you know, um, be able to match or meet. <laughs> I was okay with like ramen and noodles and stuff. So basically I was just looking for the cheapest hostel every night and then eating um, street food. So I was like spending probably like $15 a day um, in like Thailand and also having the best time of my life. Like it was like, I was with my friends, we were doing this together and we were saying like, we'd look at each other like, what did we do to deserve this? This is so amazing. <laughs> life is so colorful. It was just like new experiences all the time, meeting friends, like the travel magic was happening all the time. And like, it was great. And yeah. so, um, so that was a really beautiful, uh, way for me to realize there's a very nice life lesson or have early in life of not needing that much money to be insanely happy. And that was like a lived experience. Um, and so one message I would share is just that like, you know, there's this preconception that you need a lot of money to travel. And I basically learned that I do not, you know, I really made that stretch. And I would say most of my money went to like scuba diving. Like I was just like, mm-hmm. I was with my friend. We had gotten um, our scuba certification together like two years prior. And so when we met up, we were like, well, let's go dive at least once in every country you visit. And so along mm-hmm. the way, the uh, dive masters were like trying to sell us courses and stuff. And they're like, you know, if you pay a flat rate, uh, you can get unlimited diving. And then you can even work off what you owe too, just because like you can work in the dive shop. And then she and I were like, oh, that sounds great. Let's go find somewhere beautiful and do that. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we ended up in Koh Phi Phi, Thailand. Where I also so I um, backstory I I got into fire dancing like my last year in college picked it up in Costa Rica studying abroad anyway that's another story <laughs> so so went to Thailand for the scuba diving and the fire dancing culture and then kind of got stuck there <laughs> and then um, by the time I finished my that course um, I was broke but also I was a professional diver. And so I ended up continuing my travels and prolonging them by working as a scuba diving guide um, and then fire dancing by night. <laughs> well, I, we can't skip over going to Costa Rica, learning fire dancing. So most people study abroad and they have stories like they slept on the steps to the Coliseum and they drank a lot and met other foreign students and they came home and kept going. But you went to Costa Rica and it sounds like you really got a lot more out of it than the average college student abroad. So 
Why did you pick Costa Rica? What were you studying there? And what did you learn besides fire dancing? Yeah, <laughs> great question. I would say like this all started from that trip. Um, but I was a, I was pre-med at that time when I had signed up and I wanted to go study some sort of like biology program abroad. Um, and then that ended up being uh, my second choice. Like Australia had already closed by the time I like last minute decided to study abroad. <laughs> so I just went to Costa Rica and um, and then that was the first time I ever went snorkeling. I had never gone snorkeling before that. And when I snorkeled, I just saw the ocean and how beautiful it was. And then I was like, oh my gosh, fuck money. <laughs> <This is right laughs> and I changed my major from pre-med to marine bio because it was just so beautiful and so striking to me. And like, mm-hmm. I remembered I loved the ocean just from, it was literally just a aquarium visit, like in my middle school and high school years. Like I grew up in like an hour away from the ocean in downtown LA. So it's not in LA. So it's not like mm-hmm. I was at the ocean all the time. It was just something I just saw at the aquarium. I was like, this is so cool. And I like geek out at like the fish and read all the placards and all that stuff. But finally to have my first snorkeling experience. And then shortly thereafter, my friend and I got scuba certified. Then I was like, you know what? this is beautiful. And I just changed my emphasis. And then my last my senior year in college, all my classes are about fish. <laughs> so, um, so yes, yeah, so I, I, I picked up that switch in major uh, or switch in emphasis. And then on, on a side note, outside of the academics, like this woman was spinning poi, which are basically like balls at the end of string outside of our Spanish class. And then my friend and I were like, Oh, what's that? And she's like, Oh, we're going to do a free fire show later tonight if you want to come back. And we're like, oh yeah, let's come back. And so it came back and she was teaching everybody that was there. And then that night she let us all try with fire for the very first time. And wow. we barely had any tricks, um, but we just were like sitting on this grassy hill under the stars. And then all of us were silent. There was no music. And we just basically each took turns with this fire and we were like safety for each other. And the, when it was my turn, like the experience was so exhilarating, like it's like, you don't think about, you don't realize how that much sound the fire makes through the air. And especially when you are the one that's making that and surrounding you, it's just this like sound, like all around you. And then when I was done, like the fire goes out after a while. And then when I was done, like my heart was beating for like two hours straight. I like was so pumped with adrenaline. <laughs> I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> and I like <laughs> bought my own set and I had them waiting for me at home. And I like made hacky sacks on a string and I like made practice ones. I just was practicing throughout the rest of the trip. And so finally, when I got home, I was like, okay, well, I guess I have these now. Like I was watching YouTube videos and just like being a total nerd and like practicing. <laughs> and um, finally found like a fire community in Davis where I was going to school and uh, got swept up into that. And and yeah, that just kind of like led me into whole different directions and friend circles. So, yeah. I, I really love the academic nerd approach that you took to fire spinning <laughs> because most fire spinners are not putting together a practice routine. They're not building like the props in advance. It's not like this regimented approach, but I think it's so interesting to see how everyone learns and like the commitment level. Like clearly when you're a yes to something, you're all in. There's no, I'll think about it. I'll do it sometimes. You're like, no, no, no. We go in and we get certified and we get the degree and then we're an expert and then we do it everywhere. Like, it's so interesting to like see that process you have of if we're going to do it, we're going to be great. Who's on board? (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and also I, I feel like something to note though, is there's, there's something to be said about the setting, setting yeah. and what you set yourself up for, right? Cause when I'm back at home, there's like so many things calling for my attention. You know, there's things to do, you know, things to watch, like uh, obligations, commitments, but when I'm studying abroad in Costa Rica, where I'm like barely having internet and just like hanging out with people, um, then there's just like, you just have to be more present. And mm-hmm. so that was something that really set the stage for me to, to create time and space for me to be like, you know, I couldn't order like some stuff and have it ready for me. I just had to work yeah. on it. Um, and then, and then just going off of that, um, that excitement, uh, and then just having it on my door. And I was like, I paid $70 for these. I guess I should use them. <laughs> So, so like really having, I want to like also appreciate all those little steps and the ways that Mm -hmm. the um, environment really set me up for that too. Yeah. So, you know, I often ask people on the podcast, if eight-year-old you would be surprised about what you're doing today. And another question I often ask is like, do your parents support what you are, like how you're living your life? Which I think is interesting because your mom was the one who instigated you being a lifelong traveler. So first question, you know, eight-year-old you, is it like, would eight-year-old you be surprised of how you're spending your time and how do your parents feel today? Whoa. All right. I love that first question because it like takes me into imagination land of like, okay, what was I like when I was eight? But I want to say no, because I think that I still live in this mentality that I had back when I was eight of like the world is infinite and like there's a world of possibilities ahead of you so like of yeah. course that's all possible <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was just like yeah okay that makes sense sure why not <laughs> um and then as far as my parents I want to say that they have been my biggest supporters through all of this mm-hmm. and I'm so so grateful and appreciative of them especially having Asian parents who stereotypically would not let their daughter travel uh, abroad or like not be pursuing corporate style work or like, um, or travel as much or as long as I have. Um, so I'm really, really appreciative of them for that and so many other things, but now I feel very excited about being in this stage of life where we we're supporting each other in the sense that we all work together, um, in the family business. And so then when they travel, um, then I can also help take care of the office where I'm at right now. <laughs> and, uh, and then I get to say the same things that they used to say to me where I check in at home and yeah. she, my mom would say, instead of her going like, come home, when are you coming home? She'd be like, enjoy every minute. And so now I get to be in a place where I get to say that to them. Um, so it's, it's really sweet. What's the family business? So we are a two-part legal office. And so we, my mom is an immigration consultant. She's been helping people get their green cards and citizenship for over 30 years. And then also we help process marriage paperwork as well. It's something that's unique in Los Angeles County, kind of like how in Las Vegas, you can do those like drive-through weddings and all that. Like they actually exactly exist in Los Angeles, but even more convenient and faster. So here an office that has been helping people get legally married for I think oh, like a decade. So yeah. um, I've been helping out. I think it was a year after I started Trek Relief. I was running out of savings. And so then I was like asking friends for like waitressing jobs or like whatever that would just give me yeah. some part-time, you know, flexible work. And then my mom found out about me doing that. And she's like, okay, I got some work for you. You can help out. So then, so that's kind of like been what's been supporting me through all these years. How cool. Yeah. It's, it's, 
no matter what your family culture is, there's always, most parents are coming from a place of fear and what will set you up to be successful to the point where they don't have to worry about if you're going to eat <laughs> and be okay. And mm-hmm. also having parents that are pro-adventure and really encouraging whatever that looks like um, for my brother, my sisters and my brother and I, it's like, I can't imagine life that where it's not encouraged to like go and see what's possible. And when I think about how many people don't have that as their like family baseline, it like is almost, there's an entire like confusion part of like, well, what is life like if that's not where you're coming from? Like, I almost can't understand it. But then the second part is just, um, almost heartbreak for people who haven't been encouraged to just go and be curious because there's so much curiosity, even in our own backyards or with our careers or with, you know, our friend groups and activities, let alone everything else that's, you know, requires a passport. Um, but there's just so much to see and do and taste and people to meet in the world. I can't imagine not going and doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're both very lucky to have parents that are that are very supportive in that way. Because yeah. I have like friends who also, you know, they share about what their parents are like, and it's it's not the same. So I, yeah, it makes a big difference. It really does. Um, you know, you mentioned before about how you traveled a lot, and then you then what was exciting to you was more stability and and maybe being local for at least a little while a year. Um, how has that evolved? Are you still like, no, I'm cool eating ramen or are you like, okay, like now I kind of like to go out to dinner sometimes. I kind of like some of these things. Like, how are you balancing maturing and expanding as a global nomad who also, um, enjoys having LA as a home base? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I definitely have evolved. I would say from eating ramen (laughs) all the time. Um, I am not it's my twenties anymore. So I do have to feed myself a little better. (laughs) Um, I would say that I've, um, in my travels, I have gotten to a place where I've really started to appreciate very deeply, um, healthy, almost Mm -hmm. in the direction of like raw foods, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, uh, vegetables, fruits are like my favorite. Um, but also I do enjoy, you know, being able to go out with friends and I walk this line of, I don't know, if we can go, it's a whole nother topic is like <laughs> diet and preferences and like all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I would say that like, um, over time balancing, you know, what is needed in the moment to be like, you know, just making do with what's available for like when you're traveling versus like when you're here in LA and like, is it a social situation or is it at home? Um, yeah, I, I mean, we go in a whole different direction when it comes to food and ethical food and stuff like that too, but I don't know if that's the yeah. answer to your question. <laughs> well, no, I, I think it's just, you know, there's, I think that there's a Pandora's box that opens when you become a global citizen of when you realize that the culture that you were raised in is so different than cultures elsewhere. And it's it's not the standard that we're kind of told it is everything changes. Like what clothes you want to buy, where you want to buy from, like what food you want to eat, what you don't want to eat. You know, as a traveler, it's often really hard to want to maintain uh, a plant-based or a raw or a vegetarian or vegan diet because that's just not how every culture is. And there's this uh, honor of like, oh, if someone's hosting you and feeding you, 
do you eat it no matter what it is? Or do you like, what do you like, do you only eat what you've committed to eating? Like that's for me is like the biggest um, conflict I have with what I consume. Like if I'm buying it and I can control it, then the, the conversation's easier. But if it's nice. in someone's home, it's like, like when we were in Mongolia, every meal that they served to us was a rice blend with like really small pieces of goat meat and veggies. Well, I could pick out every piece of goat meat or I can just eat it because they, these people have nothing. They just gave us this whole meal. We were spending $6 a day. They were feeding us three times before they would eat. And it was like, just if I can eat the goat, like it's, it's, it's less than a quarter of a cup and you can like, just do it. Like, don't, it's like, you don't want to insult them. And I had no control what we were eating. I couldn't talk to them in their language. So you just kind of go with it. I did draw the line at like this, the fermented yak milk that they serve. Cause I, it just literally was making me nauseous and I'm lactose intolerant. I'm like, this is not going to be good <laughs> while traveling and staying in a yurt with everyone. <laughs> But it, it's, it is, that's, that's the biggest food conflict I have as a traveler of knowing when to enforce my personal convictions and when to be an appreciative guest. Totally, totally. And I resonate so hard with you on this because um, I did like an experimental vegan month with some friends that I was, we were like living together for a moment and um, we were all being vegan and really holding ourselves to the line. And, uh, it was fun. It was like jokes and all that stuff. But then we went out to a nice restaurant and, um, then it came to this point where the salad we ordered had pesto, but the pesto was made with cheese. And then I was like, uh, do we like send it back? Or are we going to hold our line or like what? And so I was just like really faced with the dilemma of, you know, where is this line? Right. And, mm-hmm. and I've come to this place of saying that everyone's got a line and it could be squiggly and this squiggly line can change over time based on the situation, circumstances, Mm -hmm. you know, health or whatever you, it has to change over time because of, and you have to be flexible with it. And, um, and even like judging other people's squiggly lines, it doesn't make sense because everyone's got, you know, their own squiggle in their line. So, so ultimately when it comes to, you know, my food preferences, um, I, I do what I, like, and I know what yeah. feels good for my body, but then when mm-hmm. I presented food, um, my squiggly line is I just receive with gratefulness. Mm-hmm. And so I recognize that like, yeah, like for me, when I haven't had meat in a while, I do notice how it makes my body feel like I actually feel mm-hmm. less powerful. Yeah. So, and so having a little bit of meat in my diet is actually like, I, I feel different and it feels, mm-hmm. feels better. So so my squiggly line at this moment is like, I, well, like I love cooking veggies and like eating all that really clean when I'm cooking for mm-hmm. myself, but when it's presented to me, then I receive the gratefulness. Yeah. Well, and, and even, you know, I even went through the whole process of thinking like, well, this goat is treated way better than any goat in America because his family cared for it. His family raised it. Like if you're going to eat an animal who had a great life, this goat had a perfectly happy life in Mongolia while it did. So like- totally. It's like, just get over it. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's true. Right. And like, similarly with, in the trekking outdoor hiking environment, there's, you know, there's the bougie side of it. And then there's the economic side of it. And, you know, a friend of mine has started a group called the bad outdoors women where they want to celebrate women who like, don't know all the things and just want to show up and be outside. 
Because there's this pressure to be like, oh, well, if you've never backpacked or you don't know what to bring or you don't know how to hike or you don't know the equipment or the like the rules that go into it, like no one wants to look stupid, but really we just want everyone to be outside. <laughs> so like, how do we, how do we give all that other stuff up? Because I think your story of even just how you, for your first trek in the Himalayas, people would tell you like, you have to plan, you have to practice, you have to have a guide, you have to have all these things. So, you know, what was it that, that going into it, not knowing what you don't know is always helpful, but like you made it happen. So like, was there moments in that when you got nervous or scared, were you ever underprepared? How did you just track the Himalayas by the seat of your pants and come back with to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's so funny how you said that because like when I did the trek, I had like the packing list that the book had like prepared, but I didn't go for like I I came from India with like a just a day pack. Like I was going on a mm-hmm. super lightweight like, you know, just trying to be a super minimalist whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I just bought like the most basic things that I needed for the trek based on the list. But then it said stuff like, you know, uh, rain jacket, whatever. I like bought like, cause they have really good shopping there. So they, I bought like all this like weird Tibetan hippie clothes. <laughs> it was like, not, no one wears it except for like tourists. I like ended up with that. So I was wearing like this wizard's like shirt <laughs> with like a pointy long like hood and like <laughs> bright orange tights. And like, I was hiking around like every day with the same outfit. I had like this crusty white line (laughs) this weird outfit that I had chosen for myself (laughs) at least I had a coat but the coat was like not down not fleece it was just this weird like with prints (laughs) but it was fun and like um so yeah I was not equipped in the the most proper way but like um but then the thing is is that like there's there's settlements everywhere like every hour every two hours you'll find a place to warm up even if you got it got like slightly drizzled on or rained on like there was a place to dry your stuff so so everything is possible in the sense of like it's not like complete you know um super removed from like help or or anything like Mm -hmm. that so so there was always like, it's just like, oh, just a matter of, okay, just keep going, just keep going. Yeah. And you, you'll you be able to see other people soon. And so we, yeah, we did great. I mean, like I had all the basics and then just filled up my water bottle, you know, every couple hours and kept going. So it's, it's very doable actually in the Himalayas. It sounds mm-hmm. impressive and daunting in your head, but then when you get there, you're like, oh, wow, there's people living here. This is awesome. Yeah. This is like... Like I've, I've watched friends play Assassin's Creed. Like I've, I, I used to be a video gamer in college and like, I've seen that. And like, I remember seeing scenes of Assassin's Creed and be like, oh, that's like Nepal. That's cool. It's like a very like, mm-hmm. almost like medieval-esque setting. Um, and you're like walking through like these terrorist um, towns and like, it's, it's so cool. It's so cool. <laughs> that's why I keep going back. Well, and people for who are not in, not used to backpacking or trekking, hiking, what's, what does, how is trekking different than backpacking or hiking or climbing a mountain? Ooh. So trekking is basically just multi-day hiking. Okay. And in the, in the case of the Himalayas, there are tea houses or basically like lodges that invite you to come and stay for tea or lunch or dinner or breakfast, or, and they even have like warm beds for you to sleep in. 
And so it's not like backpacking in the sense you don't have to carry the tent, the sleeping pad, all that stuff. I actually wasn't even a backpacking at all before I did my first trek in the Himalayas. And uh, I just carried a day pack with like Mm -hmm. my water bottle and you're supposed to have a rain jacket and all that stuff. Um, So, so yeah, it's, it's very, it's just basically like, it was like three hours of hiking in the morning and three hours of hiking after lunch. And then you're there. And then just keep doing that every day and just keep moving through the most spectacular mountains in the world. (laughs) I can't get over. I remember the first time I saw the Himalayas, it was like from Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal. And I remember looking up into the sky and just seeing these hard edges that were like white colored. And I was like, what is that? Is that a cloud? And I was like, oh my God, that's not a cloud. Those are mountains. I was like, that's so huge. It felt like, it felt like seeing, like when I imagine like seeing the ocean mm-hmm. for the first time, I was like, oh my God, that's so huge. Yeah. yeah. It's awesome. You just keep looking up and up and up and you're like, wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Or like when people go to New York city for the first time and you can't see where the building stops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, of course we are on the Powerful Ladies podcast and I would love to know when you hear the words powerful and ladies separately, what do they mean to you? And does the definition change when they're next to each other as powerful ladies? Oh, that's a great question. Oh my gosh. Um, When I hear the word powerful, it means to me um, that there's a lot of energy and strength behind it. ladies uh when i hear of ladies i just think of like infinite possibility <laughs> so, and together that just like is this podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um yeah it's a beautiful combination of of things mm-hmm. um and it's been really wonderful to witness other women um just mm-hmm. kill it out there and so it's it's really special to be here and even be considered to be on this on this podcast it's like Thank you. You are more than welcome and more than deserving for the impact that you're making. And, you know, when to me, Powerful Ladies is, is really about the curiosity and the adventure and the impact of the entrepreneurs, like all coming together, because I think it's really hard for someone to lean in on their life path and their, and their curiosity and not end up being entrepreneurial at some time even if you get to be entrepreneurial within a corporate setting, like for 20 years, I kind of got to do whatever I wanted at work. And of course there were rules and limitations and expectations, but I really had a lot of autonomy to do whatever I needed to achieve that goal. And thank goodness for that. Cause I <laughs> don't know how I would have made it in corporate life otherwise, but it's, th- there's just so many amazing women out there like you who are just doing what you, like, you're not doing it to show off to other people. You're doing it because you almost don't have a choice. And, <laughs> and I think that's, I just want people to know, like, listen to that poke, like, listen to that thing that won't leave you alone because there's this whole other magical world on the other side of it that you can't even imagine or wish for or attempt to manifest because you haven't opened that door yet. Yes. Yeah. And it, it sounds so cliche, but like, it's so true. Like the biggest limiting factor is yourself. When you tell yourself like, yeah. no, not yet, or not now, or not enough, or like whatever mm-hmm. that negatory thing might be. Um, but when it like flips over to like the, why not <laughs> kind of mentality, yeah. then yeah, everything is possible. 
who are women in your life that have either inspired you, influenced you, or supported you along the way? I would say my biggest um, supporter and giver is my mom. Yeah, she has been the one who um, put the idea in my head to travel in the first place. Um, She has given me work and support to be able to continue uh, what I'm doing now. And so this would not have been possible without her. Hands down. Even when you're living a life of your own design, there's still moments of defeat and frustration and impatience and thinking, maybe I should just choose the simple path. Maybe I should just choose the ordinary path. How do you get through those moments and how do you remind yourself to stay brave and optimistic and courageous? Oh man. I'm like, I, don't, I know it's a podcast. You can't really see me <laughs> like, I'm like laughing and smiling. Cause I'm like nodding. I'm like, it's so true. <laughs> um, yeah. Like I think a lot of entrepreneurs who start something, they go through that like first like crescendo of like, Oh my gosh, like this is fun. We can do it. And then there's like something that happens. And you're like, Oh my God, I'm so burnt out. Like, why did I start this? Like, what was the reason I know this? Why am I not just living a normal life? Like, kind of thing. Um, and, and yeah, those, those moments do happen and it could be from whatever it is in, in that path for you. Um, and, and I think for me, what helps me go, go through those moments is first, just take a pause and be okay with letting go of timelines. I think number one, because there's always this self-competitive drive that like pushes you forward. Like, Oh, I need to be like, hit this number by the time I'm this age or like, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever that dialogue that's driving you. And you're like, Mm -hmm. wait, why am I having those, those things? Who put that there? Like, really? Where did that thought come from? (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. what happened if I release that? Oh, I can relax. Oh, wait, that's really nice. And then, and then recognizing where those dialogues or those narratives are in your mind, releasing them, and then just doing for the sake of doing, not for the sake of impressing or being or whatever. Um, That was, I think the first release into relaxation of like, just being able to be. And Mm -hmm. then, and then um, number two, giving yourself permission to fill all the other cups in your life, because there's this cup, which is, you know, the, like the entrepreneur, like I want to show, you know, what I can do in this world. But then there's all the other cups of family, friend, relationships, you know, Mm -hmm. self, like all the things that make you a human being and not just a human doing. And also leaning into this idea that everything helps everything. And Mm -hmm. so when all the cups are filled, then everything just overflows abundantly. So, so really just relaxing into permission. Well, I think so, one, so much of that for, in my case anyway, is based on like coming back to having like faith in things, whether it's faith in myself, faith that it will work out, faith that I'm not alone, faith that there's people who want to do these ridiculous ideas with me. <laughs> like, um, you know, for me, I always notice that when I'm, in like the valley of motivation and and being energetically in the right space it's always when i come back to a place of it's me by myself on my own and thinking i have to do all the work and i have to i have to you know build the mountain not just climb over it (laughs) um what do you do to bring yourself back to the faith that you have and how things work and how the universe works for you and and faith in yourself as well. How do I bring myself back into faith? 
mm-hmm. in myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that lends into the different aspects that everyone has, right? Not, not, someone isn't just one person or one thing. There's like so yeah. many facets to a person, right? And so even if I'm feeling down because of one side of myself is feeling a little bit dull or like a little bit like damaged and like needs a little bit of healing time, then I can just focus on other parts of myself that really bring me back into this energy state that can lend into that healing. So you know, say like for some reason I need to take a break on trek relief. Then I go into the other things that I'm very passionate about. And that could be spearfishing. It could be dance. It could be acro. And, and because when I go into those things, I'm filled with all of this energy and just excitement of, you know, learning a new thing or like connecting with different people. And then somehow that energy spills over into trek relief. And then I am like, at some point I'm like, wait, I haven't taken a hair of check it now. I feel so full and ready. I can go back to it now. So, so really recognizing that there are different tools to be able to reach that energy level and giving yourself the permission and time away to, to fill yourself in other ways. Yeah. What is someone, something, sorry, what is something that you wish everyone knew? Oh, Okay. Okay. I got one. <laughs> now we're all, okay. This is, I'm going to try to say it without being too wishy-washy, but like, we're all the same person, but looking at each other from our, uh, uh, sorry, I'm going to take it back. We're all the same person, but looking out at the world with a billion eyes or eight billion eyes. Love that. What does that mean to you? Uh, if you're going to like summarize it and just like rephrase, we're all one. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but but um, but more like uh, to <clears throat> to I guess like go into it more. It's more of this idea that like we're not all uh, these individual beings. We're actually mm-hmm. all um, we're a lot closer to each other than we thought. And COVID showed us that uh, yeah. mushrooms and mycelium show us that through nature. You know, there's yeah. like so many different things that show mm-hmm. how one person how they affect each other like it it just kind of just like butterfly effects and uh, and so when you're helping someone else you're also helping yourself it's just like this beautiful like um non-tangible way of looking at the world which feels beautiful it's a lot more beautiful than having a a perspective on the world where you know my name is Candice, your name is Kara, and that's it. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like, no, actually we're living our lives for each other and we're all supporting each mm-hmm. other um, and and doing our best for each other, not just for ourselves. So brings a lot more compassion and connection. Yeah, it's part of why this podcast exists is I was just so sick of negative content and divisive content when I'm like, I don't know. I've traveled the world and everyone seems to be real similar (laughs) and like same concerns, same motivations. Like when we get down to breast tax, like we're there, there isn't a different, like humans are humans. And I don't know why we're so, uh, so much oriented towards mine. It's mine. And I'm like, is it, I don't know if you, I don't know if that's how it works. Cause I don't, you know, when we look at native cultures or we look at how animals operate, no one's walking around going mine. Yeah, it's exactly. It, it's such a, a waste of energy. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yeah. Well, we ask 
we ask everyone on the podcast where they would put themselves in the powerful lady scale. If zero is your average everyday human and 10 is the most powerful lady you can imagine, where would you rank yourself today? And how would you rank yourself on average? Oh my gosh, what a question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, Well, there's like two sides of me that wants to answer. There's like the humble side. I'm like, nah, like, (laughs) but there's also the part of me that I believe too. Like, I don't want to like, like, okay, there's part of me that's the the part tapping into the divine that is in all of us. We all just are split up into different bodies and our and awarenesses. So like 10 would be that answer. Um, I'll just leave it like that. <laughs> 10. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Um, for everyone who wants to participate or support Trek Relief or connect with you, learn more about you, where can they find you, follow you, and support you? Um, our website is trekrelief.org. That's T-R-E-K-R-E-L-I-E-F. And then there's also us on Instagram, Trek Relief, uh, Facebook, Trek Relief, uh, one words on those. So uh, we try to keep ourselves up to date on there. So feel free to check us out. And we have a trip coming up in the Everest region to support climate resilience projects and equipping mountain foothills with greenhouses in these coming years of climate change. So pairing it with an Abandablan base camp trek, 15 days, come join us. Very cool. And what is the registration? Um, like when do you have to register by to be able to go on that? Mm, you can uh, sign up for it by September. I think 27th was the date. I'll see it on our website. Um, of course, even if you had to join last minute, we wouldn't turn you away, but that would be helpful if you let us know. Um, and we try to keep things flexible because you know, COVID and all that stuff. So payment and, um, well, really we call them contributions because people can fundraise to be part of this as well. Uh, mm-hmm. That's not until right up until the trip date. So keeps things simple. Very cool. Well, it has been such a pleasure to meet you and have this conversation today. I'm glad that you're close by so we can plan to meet up in real life. Um, <laughs> but just thank you for being you and be, being an example of how you can do all the things and be all the things and you know, be happy and thriving and continue to be creating as you go. Thank you so much, Kara. And thank you. This was such a pleasure to speak with you. And your energy is so, so beautiful. I feel you through all of this. It's been wonderful. All the links to connect with Kansas and Trek Relief are in our show notes at thepowerfulladies.com. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and leave us a rating and review. They're critical for podcast visibility. Come join us on Instagram at powerfulladies. And if you're looking to connect directly with me, visit caraduffy.com or cara underscore duffy on Instagram. I'll be back next week with a brand new episode and a new amazing guest. Until then, I hope you're taking up being powerful in your life. Go be awesome and up to something you love.